Welcome to Insight Live at Noon with a rebroadcast at 7 p.m. Two correctional officers at a state prison in Sacramento County end up dead after reporting misconduct and abuse by their own. And their stories are behind an investigative podcast with the first episode drop this week. Ahead on Insight, we'll talk with the reporters behind On Our Watch. Also, Sacramento has been abuzz with Hollywood lately. I sit down with actor Billy Baldwin and a Placer County production company about their film on homelessness with a focus on our area. Finally, a father and daughter have long cemented themselves in history for breaking into nationally syndicated newspapers at a time when black cartoonists were non-existent. And their work is now an exhibit in Davis with a message that still resonates today. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. That's all coming up today on Insight. First, here's the news. From CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Within California's prison system, the role of correctional officers are, in layman's terms, to keep the peace, enforcing rules and making sure their colleagues and those incarcerated remain safe. But what happens when officers use excessive force or commit abuse and whistleblowers want to come forward with these allegations? Those questions are the focus of a new season of KQED's investigative podcast, On Our Watch. The series follows the stories of two correctional officers, a California state prison, Sacramento, formerly called New Folsom, who died in separate circumstances after reporting abuse and misconduct by fellow officers. Their stories raise questions about a culture of silence and if policies meant to protect whistleblowers failed or were ignored. Suki Lewis and Julie Small are the criminal justice reporters with KQED and join us with the new season of On Our Watch. The first episode dropped this week. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So this is the second season, but I want to go back to, to the beginning. What sparked the creation of this investigative podcast on our watch? Suki? So it really grew out of this change in the law that happened here in California that went into effect in 2019. Um, there was, you know, in response to this nationwide conversation about police shootings, you know, outcry over questions of police brutality, especially towards, you know, you know, people of color. Um, the legislature opened up these certain categories of records that had been secret for years and years and years. And those were related to the serious use of force incidents. And that is defined as, you know, a shooting or anytime someone is very badly injured by the police. And also incidents, disciplinary records related to sustained findings, which is like a guilty finding of dishonesty or sexual misconduct on duty. And so we started, you know, created this collaboration with many news agencies, including Capital Public Radio, across the state to try and get as many records as we could from all the policing agencies, including um, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, which is actually the largest employer of peace officers in the state um, to try and understand and see what this world of accountability looks like, what the world of internal affairs looks like, what is you know really happening inside these systems, you know, when the police chief or public officials come out and say, we're investigating, you know, we're going to handle it. And so the podcast came out of that effort and the just because some of the stories that we were seeing were so compelling and it felt like worth this deep dive into looking at you know what are the what are the issues that drive this system how is this really working um and you know frankly the materials themselves because we were getting these internal affairs interrogations um lent themselves to this kind of treatment so this transparency law i mean it was in 2019 it, it was 5 years ago i would imagine that offered up like a wealth of documents and information. How did you end up at California State Prison Sacramento, which was formerly called New Folsom? We ended up looking at this prison because of, you know, the the data, basically. We started looking into all these records and what really jumped out at us was there was way more of these very serious incidents that were happening at this one prison. And so, um, it, it seemed like it was worth a deeper look. And, you know, just in terms of the scale in comparison to other prisons, there were three times as many of these serious incidents happening at this one prison than in any other prison in the state. So it was like, 
the numbers just jumped out at us. And then we were like, let's take a deep, deeper look. And then we came to the stories of, you know, the officers who are at the heart of this um, piece. Hmm. Julie, New Folsom is a prison that is separate from Folsom State Prison, although located in Sacramento County. What is its population like? Well, it's considered a high security institution, which means that it's got a couple thousand men um, this is supposed to be safe and secure housing for the most di- violent and dangerous um, male uh, incarcerated men, um, including men with acute uh, mental illness um, or health issues and men convicted of serious crimes in prison. Like they've committed additional crimes. And also that includes shot callers uh, from some of the really dangerous prison gangs. Hmm. Um, I went there the first time in 2014. Um uh, toward the psychiatric services unit, which is no longer called that. <laughs> but um, I, I think what's interesting is uh, I, when I went there, one of the things that struck me was there was a group therapy uh, room, and and this has since become something people talk about. But there were these uh, the group therapy consisted of uh, these cages that were formed in a semicircle. And that's one cage for each incarcerated person, and then the psychiatrist would be outside the cages. Coming into New Folsom, we, we were able to tour last year. Um, those those cages were like in storage as we walked into the into that. They said, "Yeah, we don't use those anymore." And what they've been replaced with is these um, for for therapy now is these um, chairs with little desks that are uh, bolted to the floor. And then when incarcerated men go to sit in these chairs, they're bolted in. They're they're chained to them um, so that they should be secure. Um, more about that later, but um, it's kind of a metaphor where, you know, CDCR has been trying uh, a long time to rein in use of force, and um, they make this change. It looks good. <laughs> it looks nicer. It looks more humane. But meanwhile, the use of force incidents at the prison just keep going up, and um, they've been steadily increasing at New Folsom since 2009, and it's uh, across time New Folsom almost always has a higher uh, use of force incident rate than all the other high security institutions, of which there are just 10. These are all got the same kind of population. So why is this one so much higher? That is a valuable perspective to have. I mean, you have these basically bookending a decade from 2014 to 2023. Your series focuses on two correctional officers. Julie, introduce us to them. Who are they? Well, uh, one of them is Valentino Rodriguez Jr., and he was a, a rookie officer when he came to New Folsom. Um, he faced some really hard choices right off the bat. Um, he learned pretty quickly that um, to keep his job, he had to keep his mouth shut um, and follow what his team said was happening. He was involved in an incident when it, where an inmate was seriously injured, and as it was as he related to his family members, he was not told that he had to write his report the same way, but he was told that's kind of what we do. We're all on the same team. We're going to write it this way. Um, anyway, just an example. And then, um, um, but uh, one of the things that he really wanted to do was to get into the investigative services unit, which is like the police force in the in the prison. And um, he gets in there, but he finds that it's like really. Um, toxic culture. It's a coveted position. And then he got that opportunity because someone went out on leave and his his presence is resented and um, the other members start to harass him. Um, He did find somebody within the ISU who he could trust. And that was the other officer that we were telling his story, which is Kevin Steele. And he's a he was a veteran officer. Um, He was in charge of the prosecution unit. Uh, He really believed in the mission of CDCR and believe that the systems uh, in place to hold people accountable and keep people safe in the prison were for the most part working um, until he witnessed some incidents uh, in which he saw the failures of that system. And both of them um, decided to break the code of silence, report misconduct, which is really rare. Um, And we don't want to tell you any more about that (laughs) or your audience because we want you to listen to the podcast. But uh, as you can imagine, the cost of speaking out um, ends up being really high. Mm. I, Suki, I can only imagine um, investigating something like this can be difficult because not everyone is still alive. I mean, can you kind of walk us through, help us visualize how you were able to access and vet information? I mean, not to mention, it's just hard to get people 
to talk? What was reporting the story like? Yeah, there were a lot of different challenges um, because you're trying to get um, people who are in prison to speak with you, who are incarcerated. And, you know, the only communication that you can have with them for the most part is over recorded phone lines. So they feel under threat sometimes when talking to you. And then you're trying to get correctional officer sources also to speak to you. And they, um, you know, can face retaliation for speaking out. Um, And then you're dealing also with the family members of, you know, people who have died and are are very, you know, raw and traumatized. So there are a lot of different things that we had to balance in doing this reporting. Um, You know, for, for me, like we... We began with the records because that's that was kind of like the the starting point for that, and those have been really helpful um, just in terms of you know understanding the patterns that they show. So one incident in isolation, it becomes very difficult to say who's telling the truth, right? Like this is what the officers say happened. This is what an incarcerated person says happened. Who's to know? But when you start to see a pattern of this, you know, it's kind of like what we saw with the Me Too movement, right? Where you're like, oh, wait, these are all different situations. People who don't have, you know, any, any, anything in common with each other, or like haven't corroborated each other's stories, but they're t- saying the same kind of pattern of events happened. And then, Going from that to, you know, talking to correctional officer sources and saying, did you hear about, you know, this kind of uh, misconduct happening, this kind of excessive use of force happening um, and them and getting confirmation from some correctional officer sources. So it's a matter of like going to as many sources as possible, talking to as many people as possible and getting as close to the truth um, of anything as we possibly can. Um, within the world that such as it is. (laughs) And I know the first episode just dropped this week. And so you want people to to follow along on your reporting journey. But what would you like listeners to know about the main findings of your investigation into this prison, Suki? Um, I think, you know, the one of the things that was really surprising to both Julie and I was the this high rate of use of force at this prison and also the fact that that rate is going up and that's going up across California prisons. And there have been many efforts, you know, there have been policies passed, there have been uh, laws passed, there has been more transparency, you know, uh, implemented. They have body cams in a lot of the prisons now. And yet we're still seeing this trend upward, which I think was, was quite surprising to us and also just raises the question of, you know, are these are these policies making a difference or like what is the lived reality inside these places? And the second one, which kind of is connected to that point, is that um, the people who are being hurt, I think we, we do talk a lot about incarcerated people who are hurt inside this system, and that, that remains true. But I think what we heard a lot and which feels really new is how correctional officers feel you know, very torn up inside this system and that they also become victims of it oftentimes. And we have spoken to, I don't know, probably a dozen current and former correctional officers um, who who just feel very, very ground up by by the machine of this system and that it was it was a very difficult place to retain your humanity. Um, there were very few incentives to, you know, come forward and do the right thing. Um, often you were penalized for trying to do the right thing. And so I think if we want to look at this, you know, broader system and how to fix it, we have to be talking to the people who are working inside of it, as well as those who are living inside of it. Mm. What has the response been from the California Department of Correction and Rehabilitation in response to, to your podcast? Well, very little. <laughs> I mean, they, they have answered some of our questions in written form. They gave us a, they allowed us to tour uh, New Folsom uh, last spring. Um, but as far as having a dialogue with them, that's not happening. They refused our request to speak to the Secretary of Corrections, to speak to senior staff at the at the prison at New Folsom. Um, um, and uh and they would not verify the the findings the, from our data, even though the data was supplied by them. They would not have a dialogue about our analysis. They would neither confirm it nor deny it kind of thing. 
So there's really not been a conversation um, that would be important to have. Yeah. I'll I say mean, just, just in, in terms of what they did say in their defense, which was, you know, that they do have these systems in place. They just put a new internal affairs complaint system where rather than it being reviewed inside the institution, it goes to like a central, um, you know, you know, supposedly kind of more impartial screening uh, panel with that then decides, you know, is this a grievance about staff misconduct? How should it be treated? Should it go to internal affairs? So they say, you know, that's fairly new. Like this is a new way for us to make sure that these complaints are thoroughly investigated and to hold people accountable. And then they also pointed to the body cameras and say, you know, we've implemented all these fixed cameras and body cameras to also provide more transparency inside the prison and more accountability inside the prison. And CDCR did send us a statement as well, you know, ahead of our conversation for this podcast and really echoing a lot of what you had said about the restructuring and the changes and the additions that have been made in that time. I'm also curious, this is a focus on one prison. Do you think incidents like what's going on uh, at New Folsom is happening at other California prisons across the state, Julie? Absolutely. I mean, the the violence is increasing. The use of force is increasing across the state. And we've had recent um, terrible corruption uh, revealed down in um, RJD in San, in San Diego County. Um, you know, uh, there's always uh, Salinas Valley State Prison problems with the the um, disciplinary system there. That's the reason why they implemented a new system for handling grievances. Um, it just keeps happening. And we get reports from all over the state of incidents like the ones we see at New Folsom. But again, New Folsom was just so much more dramatically higher, um, the use of force incidents there. Hmm. Suki, I mean, when someone is going to be taking in this podcast, um, it they can feel uh, demoralized. I mean, w- what needs to change to prevent this type of misconduct? What do you want listeners to leave with? Um, you know, it's it's not for me to make policy recommendations. So I'll just say that off the bat. Um, but I think that just from talking to, again, the, the people, the people that we've talked to inside um, this system that, you know, allowing, you know, providing more real protections for whistleblowers, because often the whistleblowers that we've spoken to have very a lot of difficulty accessing any protections. Like often it's retroactive. So you have to first experience retaliation before you get any protection. And then you have to prove that whatever discipline you got was retaliation. So it can be quite onerous to um, to do. And again, in terms of the disincentive then to speak out, it's like, you know, what what is the incentive to speak out? I think that that incentive structure really needs to change. And it would be great if, you know, brains bigger than mine took a look at that. And also, again, spoke to officers about what they would like in terms of that system and how those protections could be accessed by them. And then in terms of incarcerated people, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how this new grievance review system works. But we're already hearing from some people in terms of the body cameras that, body camera footage is being destroyed before, you know, it is supposed to be, it's supposed to be maintained for at least 90 days and it's being destroyed before then, or in a, the disciplinary hearing reviews that incarcerated people go to, they are not allowed to access those recordings sometimes. And so while these new systems are being put in place, I think about implementation and actually the people who need access to them, how do they get access to them, I think is a really good place to start. Suki. I just want to jump in on that, oh, Vicky, and say that also um, a call out to lawmakers. I'm surprised to see that there have been no calls for um, an inspector general review of this prison, despite these deaths and the higher rate of use of force. Well, Suki and Julie, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. Thank you. Suki Lewis and Julie Small are criminal justice reporters at KQED, and they are discussing the new season of their investigative podcast, On Our Watch, which focuses on California State Prison Sacramento, formerly called New Folsom. The first episode dropped this week. As we mentioned, 
The California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, CDCR, did send us a statement about this podcast. They said that they can't comment on specifics, but they have restructured its process to ensure complaints are properly, fairly, and thoroughly reviewed. They have improved the investigations process on staff misconduct allegations and announced changes to employee discipline for misconduct, as well as that fixed and body-worn cameras are now in place. Their full statement is on our website. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Sacramento has felt a bit like Hollywood lately. This week, Leonardo DiCaprio was caught filming a movie in downtown along with heavy hitters like Sean Penn, Tayana Taylor, and Regina Hall. And another Hollywood star was actually in town as well, shooting a feature movie. William Billy Baldwin. Yep, Alec Baldwin's brother has been working in Sacramento as well as in Auburn for quite a while on a movie called No Address. The movie is due out in the fall and it hopes to humanize the issue of homelessness. Last week, I sat down with Billy Baldwin and Jennifer Stolo with the production company Robert Craig Films, which is based in Placer County. William or Billy and Jennifer, thank you so much for making the time and and coming to Insight here at Cap Radio. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. You know, Billy, I... I think pretty much everyone knows that your career in Hollywood goes back years and decades. You have been in several movies spanning lots of genres. What attracted you to doing a movie about homelessness now? Well, the opportunity presented itself. It was there. They offered it to me. And I I usually look at the script and the character, the cast, the director. Do they have the funding to to support, you know, do they have the budget to support the project? That checked all the boxes. It was a beautiful ensemble piece about about the crisis of homelessness in America. And I've done you know every genre. I've done you know rom. I've done comedies and I've done dramas and I've done action films and I've done. I just did like a grindhouse uh, horror movie called Candyland. I've done. I, I like to try it all. And um, this this had an extra layer to it, which was. That it had a, it was like a social impact film, so I, I wanted to do it for all of those reasons, and especially because of the message we were trying to the, the subject matter. Yeah, when it comes to homelessness in California, I mean the number of people who are unsheltered. I mean it's the most in the country. It is a number that has hit a record here in Sacramento. Do you think the timeliness of this film is important? I absolutely do. You know, um, when we started to think about doing this movie, No Address, we as producers really wanted to educate ourselves and make sure that we really fully understood this American crisis. So we actually took a bus tour for three weeks uh, into 20 different cities across 18 states. um, And we really thought most of it would be state and local leaders, you know, that we would interact with. But uh, we went one step further and we met with all of the agencies and organizations that are really at the forefront of this. And many of them are those nonprofits and then including those that have been formerly homeless as well as those that are, are actively experiencing homelessness. And it was just um, an unbelievable 
staggering, you know, to say what you see out there. You know, um, we went through what's working and what's not working. And there are some amazing solutions out there, which was the bright light in all of this. But there is 1.2 million adults that are homeless in our country and even worse, 1.5 million children. So it is something that is right there in front of every single community, if not the first problem in their community. And so it really needs to be addressed. Um, and our goal is to reshape the narrative and, and really have some compassion around this situation. And Jennifer, you're with Robert Craig Films, which is actually in our area. It's in Placer County. Tell us about the history of this production company. Yeah, so Robert Craig is just an amazing man. He's been a longtime business owner, entrepreneur, and uh, was an actor and always had a dream to have his own film company. But he really has a heart for the community and the heart for people um, that are in need. And so he really wanted to make sure that his film company was more about inspiring audiences to have more compassion, empathy, and generosity um, in the communities in which they live. And so um, he did one on human trafficking. Um, I joined his team a year ago as a CEO um, when we started on this journey of no address. He's very involved in his church and the homeless ministry that they have um, up in Placer County. And so this really spoke to his heart when he read the screenplay. Where did no address come from? What is its origin story? Well, these are individuals that are actually navigating the streets and the struggles without having a physical address. And so if you think about what that's like, if you did not have an address, you could not receive mail. You could not fill out an application for a job. Um, there's many things that we don't realize we can't do without having a physical address. And that many of our storylines then lead you to to understand that this could happen to anyone. And wow, what it, would it feel like? Hmm. Was it inspired by a screenplay? Yes, yes. Julia Verdon uh, wrote a magnificent screenplay and uh, we're actually in the middle of making Amy and Angel a different movie that we've put on hold till 2025 and um, read this script and just were inspired by um, really true events that happen in our community and it takes you down uh, the path of understanding how um, children that uh, grow up in a foster care system and then transition out how one out of three you know in our state right here actually find themselves on the streets unfortunately so we have that storyline our veterans PTSD addiction mental health which is the biggest gateway into homelessness and then Billy's role um, as a successful businessman and I'll let him tell you how that turns well, out well not so successful behind <laughs> the scenes I'm really doing a juggling act I'm uh, heavily in debt and I'm trying to hold my marriage together and I I see homeless people and I've been active uh, in the, the crisis of homelessness with various organizations for decades actually and for years I've been seeing homeless people and saying you know what happened how did that happen what chain of events occurred in this person's life when they were 5 10 15 years old that allowed them to slip through the safety net and and uh, and wind up being homeless as you touched upon a lot of them veterans mental health addiction f the failure of, the, of, of aspects of the, the foster care system and um, we have many, many different storylines. My character is is on the edge, under a lot of pressure with his marriage, trying, you know, really humiliated and and ashamed because uh, he knows he's on the brink of foreclosure on his house and bankruptcy and credit. You know, I, there was a time in my life, you know, when the 2008 collapse, mm. where I had. I wasn't on the brink of, of clearly of homelessness, but I literally had the IRS, the Franchise Tax Board, my mortgage company, and five credit card companies that were robo-calling me for 18 months. And I was on a television show on ABC with Donald Sutherland and Jill Clayburgh, and we were a smash hit, and the collapse hit, and they canceled the show, and I didn't work for two years. And I went from literally being majorly in the black to being like seven figures in the red. And I had, I had people chasing me down and the beauty of the, uh, the the blessing of my life is I was able to run up credit card debt. I was able to borrow money from friends. If that failed and I was evicted, I was able to, I would have been able to take my children and go crash in somebody's basement or their guest house for a while. But the arc of my character is th all these things happen. The, the planets aligned. He winds up losing his job. They wind up living in a motel, and 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 they you know they lose everything. And um, here doing some of the pickup shots to a little bit more clearly define the arc of, of my character. But he's somebody who was married with a child and a job. And the next thing you know, he's he slipped through the cracks himself. I think so many people could resonate with what you just shared about facing financial hardship, whether mm -hmm. it's a medical bill. Um, I have talked to people who are unhoused. They have full-time jobs. They just can't afford rent or housing. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of 
existential issues that can put you on the financial brink. And your personal experience, I would imagine, allowed you to develop a lot of empathy for the character that you were playing. No question. I mean, I, I had a, a child that had stage four cancer. I had major, and I have Rolls Royce insurance with the Screen Actors Guild, and I still get it with whopping fees to have to with copays and stuff. I just had several emergency room visits, one with my wife and one one with my daughter. And after insurance, the bill uh, for my daughter's uh, emergency room visit in New York City was nineteen thousand dollars. I had to pay. Well, and also what you're laying out is, you know, even if you face one crisis, life still goes on and life's challenges still go on Mm -hmm. as well. And they can become further compounded. And especially when you're talking about a crisis like homelessness and during the pandemic, the number of people who were unsheltered spiked and skyrocketed, especially in Sacramento County. We had a 67 percent increase, a record in Sacramento County. I mean, Jennifer, I would imagine the timeliness of wanting to do this film, which also you have a documentary, you know, pairing it with an actual film. I mean, the timeliness couldn't be more important, more poignant. Right. And we actually developed what we call the big five. And and the goal is really so that we can reach all audiences. Right. So we've got the movie. So for moviegoers, right, it's a full feature, a full length feature film that'll be in theaters nationwide in September. And the documentary will come out this spring for people that love to see documentaries. Right. It takes you back, you know, 30 years of how this all started, you know, every decade, how it's gotten worse, um, what's working, what's not working and the history of it all. And then the screenplay, as you mentioned, actually won a tremendous amount of awards. And because of that, we decided to write a book. So for people that are bookgoers, right, they can they can learn about this um, through that way. And then we also have a soundtrack coming out because you can't have a movie without a soundtrack, right? Ashanti is in our movie. Uh, so she will lead that path in our music elm. And then um, a study guide. So we took another route too. As we went on this documentary, we met with so many amazing experts. And they offered when we came back from this three-week tour to actually put together a study guide. And this is more on our faith-based um, kind of route that churches can really utilize this in their church ministries or groups or individuals. There's so many times people say, like, what can I do? I don't know what to do. And there's so much that can be done when you partner up with these amazing nonprofits that are at the forefront of this. And so our study guide takes groups of people and individuals through an interactive way. There's videos and discussion groups and different things. So the, those five elements, our hope is that it touches all audiences, right? So it's, it's in front of us everywhere in America, and everybody needs to come together and have that empathetic, compassionate view of this in order for us to start making strong solutions. Did it deepen your empathy, Billy, being part of this film and and, and this character, a deeper understanding of understanding why this can happen? Yes, yes, it it definitely. uh, It was sort of a refresher course because when I moved to California with with my wife, I sort of stepped away from a lot of the advocacy. I wasn't like an actor that became an activist. I was an activist that happened to become an actor. And I had been doing advocacy work since I was 15 years old. And um, it was sort of a refresher course on the many paths that can lead to homelessness. One of the things that I learned is that there can be dramatic solutions that are very, very cost-effective and almost immediate. The work that they're doing at the Gathering Inn, I was up there. That's really what I would suggest people do. If you, if you know, there, there's so many, people think it's a really super complicated issue. And in some ways it is, because if you're dealing with any aspect of mental health, it can get very, very complicated. Um, but the solutions are there. If you take the, the public aspect of it at the federal, state, and local level, and you partner with uh, wealthy individuals and nonprofits and churches, you can coordinate a network that can lead to high-impact solutions that are very, very cheap. At the Gathering Inn, they're feeding people for 19 cents a meal. And the big, big issue for this is not the complexity of it. The big, big issue is the political will. This doesn't exist in Japan. This doesn't exist in Canada to the degree it does in America. This doesn't exist in Scandinavia. It's because they have the political will and the capital to answer the question and, and to solve the problem. And, and everyone has compassion. When I walk down the street, when anybody walks down the street, no matter how hardened your heart is, they, they don't see, you know, just get rid of those people. I don't care. They want their compassion. They want them to get care. They want them to be taken care of. The, the, the gathering in is providing a roof Food, clothing, safety, security, stability, uh, education, vocation, job placement. A third of the people that were there were were getting dressed to go to work at Home Depot. 
You know, and of course, there's some people there because the complexities of mental health, some of them will work, some of them may not work, and some of them may need lifelong care. Yeah, and off that, like by doing a film like this and a documentary and you have, you know, other um, complimentary things as well, like a lesson plan as well. I mean, it's to educate people, right? Mm-hmm. And to widen perspectives, to get past frustration or feeling helpless or feeling demoralized about this issue. When people finish the film, how do you want them to feel? motivated, you know, inspired uh, to do something in their community. It really is a collaboration effort. And that's what we saw when we uh, developed this documentary. Where it was working is was in communities that there was a tre- tremendous amount of collaboration. You know, you have your board of super... That's why Placer County is working. They have their board of supervisors. They have all their council members from all of their cities. They have their law enforcement. They all come together to find the solution that works best or is what is needed there. And that's what we've seen across the country is the collaboration and effort of others. Um, and hopefully as people come out of this movie, there's also this understanding like this could happen to anyone. I mean, Billy's story right there. We all have a story, right? I'm, I'm a, a survivor of breast cancer. You know, you go through an illness like that for a long period of time, you you are in a financial different situation potentially. And so it, it could happen to anyone. And that's that's really what we want people to see that you're not, you know, um, it's 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 out there and we can't turn a blind eye to it. We have to fix it. Um, we've got to look at these people as human beings and see the human side of the situation. They're real people with real stories. And so often I always say they're stories that we don't think they are. Billy took a, a tour and, and spent a lot of time yesterday sitting down and talking to in our area in our area in Placer County mm-hmm. and uh, talking with individuals and the stories that you hear it's like you say that it could be one thing that just happened and if you don't have the right support network around you or the resources to be able to move forward it's it can happen it just can happen what stood so, out to you from those conversations that you had with people that are that are really going through it um I had a lot of fun with with the staff there. I spent some time with the staff and with the residents, and some of the staff are former residents. And uh, the one thing I think that that would be very obvious too, I think, would that touch me is is how how invisible they feel. You know, that's what, what's sad for me. And a way your audience can address this and help us would be number one to see the film because if you see the film, you're buying tickets, and we're giving fifty percent of the proceeds that are going to fund. Nonprofits that are doing work in the homeless uh, in homelessness in Northern California, so that'll be seed money to help in your community. Another way would be, which I, I would highly recommend, grab one of your neighbors, grab one of your friends, grab your sister, grab somebody that you go to church with, and go check out uh, the gathering in or someone that's doing this type of work because it it will it will touch you in a way that may motivate you and inspire you to say, you know. Uh, how can we replicate what they're doing with the gathering in? Well, now people are listening. They're going to want to watch the the film and the documentary. When when will it be released, you think? So we're, we're thinking September of this year. Uh, the movie will come out. Billy and some of our other cast are up here this week doing what we call pickup shots. Uh, we had finished the movie, but then the SAG strike happened, and so we had to wait a little bit to finish out. So um, we're looking at this fall, and I'm really excited. Well, Jennifer and Billy, it was a pleasure. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you. Thank you. Such an honor to be with you. That is actor Billy Baldwin and Jennifer Stolo, CEO of Placer County-based Robert Craig Films. The film No Address is expected to be released in September. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. 
I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Comic strips have been part of American newspapers for more than a century, dating back a few years before 1900. And a father and daughter have been leaders in their own respective packs. The work of the late Brumsick Brandon Jr. and his daughter, Barbara Brandon Croft, spans decades. Brumsick's work dates back to the 1960s, among the first black newspaper cartoonists to become nationally syndicated. And in 1989, his daughter, Barbara, became the country's first black woman cartoonist in the mainstream press. It is groundbreaking work that still resonates today. All of this has been transformed into an exhibit at the UC Davis Design Museum. It is called Still, Racism in America, a Retrospective in Cartoons, which showcases the work of Barbara Brandon Croft and her late father. Barbara joins us now, along with curator Tara Nakashima Donahue, about the installation, which runs through April. Good afternoon. Hi. Good afternoon. <laughs> so, Barbara, to get acquainted with you, I read your work titled One Cartoonist Story, a Mini Memoir, <laughs> and it brought such a big smile to my face. I couldn't help but think that you were clearly destined for this from just your natural talent to draw, obviously having your father, a, a mentor under one roof. But it also seemed like art and humor and also not being afraid to have a voice were formative fixtures during your childhood and within your home. It sure. We, I grew up with my dad, who was this political cartoonist, you know, and, and he kept his work on the walls and it was ingrained. I was you know, ensconced in all of this kind of way of looking at life and looking at the world. So I I didn't even know I was being trained or I didn't look at it that way. I was just, it just, I was immersed in it and it, it made me um, the cartoonist I am today. I would love to learn more about your father. What drew him to a career in, in comic strips? He always, always, always wanted to be a cartoonist. So even when he was a kid, he was drawing constantly. His first uh, comic strip was in the 40s, I'm sure, because he moved to New York. He was He's from D.C., and he moved to New York and to go to NYU, and he would go with what the cartoonists did then. Is There was a day that you took your cartoons to different magazines, and I think one of his first ones was the Saturday Review um, that he sold a gag, you know, cartoon. Saturday Review of Literature. Saturday <laughs> Review of Literature, yes. And um, so... Um, he always wanted it, and he and he actually always wanted to have a, um, a syndicated comic strip, which no black men were doing at the time. When he wanted, as long as he wanted, he became one of the one of the three uh, black cartoonists: Maury Turner, Wee Pals from this area, and um, uh, Ted Shearer with Quincy, and then my dad with Luther. Wow. And then you were um, following behind, I, uh, unbeknownst to you at yes. the time, but you were your work as a cartoonist debuted in 1989 in the Detroit Free Press. And yes. at that time, you became the first black woman cartoonist to, to be in the mainstream press. Your series was called Where I'm Coming From. What inspired it? So I was asked to come up with an you know, idea for a comic strip, not for Detroit Free Press, for another publication. And I was like, mm. it was a black woman's magazine. I was like, you know what, I'm going to do black women talking and speak in their minds. And, you know, I you know, reflected on my own thoughts and my friends. And I was like, I can make this work. And they liked it. Unfortunately, they folded. So I had this comic strip. When Detroit was looking for more black cartoonists, they asked my dad, does he know of any? And I was like, me, I'm, I'm one. And I sent it to them and they liked it. So I, I've been very fortunate. Yeah, I mean, these comic strips, as comic strips are, I mean, they're cartoon characters, but you had a cast of black women dealing with real-life issues, uh, relationships, sexism, and racism. Yes, yes. I had I actually, when I initially was going to make the uh, cartoon, it was going to be a different person every time. So it was just a different black woman's perspective every time. But, you know, once it was becoming a weekly, they're like, we need to you know, get this down a little bit. So it ended up being like nine characters. I couldn't whittle it down any further than mm -hmm. that. Cause, um, but, you know, it's, it's just the point. I'm glad that I have a, a cast of characters, cartoon characters, that weren't caricatures. Mm -hmm. You know, they were actual women talking about what's going on. What kind of response did you receive? I mean, this was nationally syndicated. Yeah, I, I got a lot of nice responses. You know, mostly people saying... Um, you know, how did you know what I was thinking? You, this is exactly what I was living. You know, this is what I'm feeling. 
And then I got some um, not-so-fan mail, you know, from people who think just, maybe they didn't even read it, but, you know, just thinking by virtue of it being a black woman, um, that it was anti-men and also anti-white. And I'm like, are you reading it? Do you understand what um, what I'm doing here? You know, so, you know, well, what are you going to do? That's that's just the, the nature of, of doing a comic strip, you yeah. know? I- yeah, I mean, it. Um, you persevere and you, yeah. and, and you keep doing it, yeah. right? And I was reading on your website, I mean, you had this really powerful quote that, you know, both your father and yourself are among the first to have black characters drawn by black hands in the white press. I mean, what did that kind type of, of agency teach you from a young age to, to yeah. now? I watched it with my dad because when he was before Luther, he was doing comics and and editorial cartoons for the black press. And there's a certain freedom that you feel when you can just say what you want to say and put it out there. So and the fact that I was initially asked by a black woman's magazine to do it, I felt that same freedom. Mm -hmm. And I saw it. You know, I was like, that was something I understood. So. It, it does give you a certain sense of agency. And, you know, like, this is my point of view. This is what I'm saying. And, you know, kind of in your face kind of thing, which, um, you know, I'm not mean. I'm a kind person. But I'm like, I'm just upfront and, and honest, you know. Tara, that brings me to you. I mean, how did you become connected to their work? Because this now has transformed into an art exhibition. Yeah, I had been curating exhibits um, on and off for um, several years. And I um, was curating an exhibition where I was pushing myself to really find uh, female cartoonists and um, and and spotlight uh, female characters. And so I reached out to Barbara. Um, I, I was doing some research and um, and I came across her name in a Trina Robbins um, uh, book on on women cartoonists and there was Barbara and I was like oh I recognize her work I wonder if she's somebody I can reach out to I'd really love to spotlight um, the first nationally syndicated black cartoonist in, in mainstream press female cartoonist um, and there's she responded. Um, I invited her to this exhibition, and um, subsequently in the group exhibitions I did I continued to invite her, um, and our relationship grew from there. It was really. Um, amazing to get to know her work and her father's work. Um, And a lot of what you can find is the Luther comic strips that Barbara mentioned earlier and that you've mentioned earlier. Um, And so in meeting Barbara, we would meet like during lunch or after work sometimes. She would bring Freedom Ways um, and uh, this uh, journal that Mr. Brandon cartooned in um, in the 60s and the 70s, actually through the 63 through 85. Um, And um, and she was going through the archives of her father's work and would it would just bring things for me to look at. And that's how I, I came to um, to know their work. Yeah. And it's all led up to here at, in yes. Davis at UC yes. Davis at the Design Museum. And the exhibit is called Still Racism in America, a Retrospective in Cartoons. So, I mean, that title itself, like I get a good understanding of the intention behind this exhibit. Mm-hmm. What conversations did the two of you have about the value of having people look to the past to gain a better understanding of what faces us as a society today? Um, initially, I thought of it as a book. You know, I thought that it would make sense to do um, my my dad's comic strip uh, or cartoons next to mine, years apart, and how not only were we talking about the same issues, we were getting the same kinds of responses. Not all of them were kind, and we'd have the same kinds of responses. And I was talking to Tara about it, and she was like, this could be an exhibit. I was like, what? <laughs> and and she was right. And we put this together, and that's exactly what it does. We don't even, it, the little labels by every piece that you'll see in the exhibit is this, just the year. And it's, she curated. So it, it, it covers so many issues. Um, but underneath, you'll see, you might read it and say, this just came out. This must have been drawn yesterday. It's like, oh, 1974. You know, it's, and then 83, and then 92, and right. then 2000s, and yet it's yesterday um, yeah. as well. Hence still, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, are we going to get past this? Well, especially today, I mean, the pace of, of news and current events um, is, is so fast, you know. I mean, we're inundated by it. So it, I think it's good to take that pause and that hard look back to, you know, we're not 
in many ways, in a new time, um, you know, just a continuation of what has been happening over the decades. I'm curious, Barbara, given that the work in this exhibit is just so deeply ingrained within yourself and your family, when you took in the exhibit for the first time, what was it like to take in decades of work in totality? It it blows my mind, you know. Every time, this is the third iteration of Still, we did it first in New York, and um, I remember Tara and I, night after night, going through stuff and trying to put things into order and, you know, just trying to think about it. And then when I arrived at the exhibit, I was blown away. She did an incredible job of, of, of what we talked about, you know, and um, and each time we do it, um, it's, a, it's a different space, so it's a different way to approach it. And um, so... You know, again, yesterday I was blown away. I was like, wow, look at this. This is great. So, yeah. Tara, since this started as an idea of yours, I mean, and now it's in its third iteration, um, what kind of response have you received that kind of sticks with you and, and keeps you doing it? It's the look on people's faces when they leave the gallery and how intent they are on re- and reading through all the cartoons as they've been laid out. Um Often when you go to exhibitions, you see people sort of moving quickly, but this exhibition really draws people in and they're really pausing at each cartoon and just moving very slowly through the space. And I'm really, um, it's really been amazing to to see people um, spending that much time and then also just hearing their responses after um, people feeling incredibly moved, um, horrified, needing to take a break, um, and, and also revisiting the exhibit, which is always an honor when people spend that much time with the work. Tara and Barbara, thank you so much for the time. Thank Thank you you for having us. Welcome to Sacramento. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That is Barbara Brandon Croft, the nation's first black woman cartoonist in the mainstream press, and curator Tara Nakashima Donahue, and they are discussing their exhibit still, Racism in America, a retrospective in cartoons. It is at the UC Davis Design Museum, which showcases the work of Brandon Croft, as well as her late father, Brumsick Brandon Jr. This exhibit runs through April. And that is it for Insight today. You can learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. You can also reach out to us. Send us an email at insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producer Sarit Lashinsky and managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer and audio engineer is Chris Feltz. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones. And our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.